super friends with Eric Esquivel. For about 16 years, from the beginning of the 40s to the mid-50s, I suffered a peculiar kind of occupational thraldom, but I wasn't entirely aware of it. In fairy tales and legends, there are numerous stories of humans bound into the service of trolls, giants, witches, and other demonic and suprahuman entities. But in today's rational world, we are scarcely likely to recognize or give credence to such creatures. Consequently, when we are, in a very direct sense, taken over by such a being, we either tend to reduce it to mere psychology or deny that it's happening altogether. In my case, as well as that of all my coworkers, we chose the path of denial. It simply never would have occurred to us that we were, to put it bluntly, being directed. I was not to understand until long afterwards, however, that it wasn't I or any of the other writers or the editors who directed Superman's destinies. Superman directed his own destinies. All of us were merely his pawns. But the realization seems to be, long after the fact, mine alone. Ah, oh, that gives me chills. Welcome back to Super Friends, you guys. That guy, that the dulcet tones you just heard were from Caleb Monroe. Caleb, welcome to the studio, man. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad that you picked this book. It is called An Unlikely Prophet by Elvin Schwartz. And this is something that you chose for us to read. Yes. And I'm, I'm, I've had this book on my shelf for literally maybe like eight years. I found it in a, a used bookstore, and it looked like too crazy to be true. <laughs> How did you find this book? I actually, it, there's a paragraph where Grant Morrison mentions it in Super Gods. Mm-hmm. And I read Super Gods for the second time earlier this year. Gotcha. And was reminded, oh, yeah, that book. I want, I'm meant to go back and read that book. And so when I was thinking of uh, what to suggest for the podcast, I thought this would be the perfect excuse to read it because it's, I'm not going to get many other chances or to to talk about it or or like put deadlines on myself to read it. Otherwise, I think it would probably keep slipping off yeah. in, in the stream of all the books that come and go from my house. So it was perfect. It's a weird book to read. So Alvin Schwartz, as we know, is in as a Superman writer. Uh, he started writing comics in 39, and he stopped in 58. So he was a writer on the golden age of comics. Um, he wrote Superman and Batman. He wrote the Superman uh, strips for the newspaper as well as the comics. He wrote the first ever Bizarro story, which is very fitting because this is a very bizarre book. <laughs> yes. So this is. is this is a memoir, right? Uh, the cover says a metaphysical memoir by the legendary writer of Superman and Batman. And I think one of the questions for us to discuss is whether it is a memoir or not. Yeah, yeah. It's very, um, I would say, like David Lynchian, where it's, <laughs> yes. it's, uh, it's populated with real facts. And then also, so the premise of this book is that, as you just read, that Superman is a real entity. It's a real force that we can tap into, that so many people have believed in this icon for so many years that it now has a life outside of just comics and that it's a consciousness that you can interact with and that can interact with you and that the best Superman stories are when writers open themselves up to the idea of Superman and they channel this idea through them. And, uh, and he claims that, yeah, that, that that's a, not just poetic language, but that's actually literally true. Yes. So in the book, he claims to have actually manifested a tulpa of Superman, so, which is yeah. a, a tulpa is a it's a term taken from Tibetan Buddhism, mm-hmm. but it's the idea of a thought form made tangible. Mm-hmm. Sort of like and, a Green Lantern construct. Yes. It's, it's, and I, and I thought made physical. <laughs> but with any color. Yes. Yes. So it's like a rainbow ring um, sort of effect. I like it. And uh, so he claims to have both manifested and met this figure well actually eventually that's not quite right he claims he met the figure in a dream Mm -hmm. but then he manifested him physically but 
through the inside, not the outside, which is a term that he uses. And <laughs> it gets, so, <laughs> it gets a little trippy. Yes. Well, well, first of all, um, so he, it starts off where he's just talking about his real life, where he's a writer of Superman. He's, he's retired now. He lives in Canada. All these things are true. Um, and then in, in the book, he talks about being contacted by a, a, a tulpa, a thought form that was manifested by a Tibetan um, like seeker d- like decades ago. And uh, this guy's source has died. This thought form's thinker has passed away. And now he's starting to fade from existence. And he, he needs someone new to believe in him, like Santa Claus or Tinkerbell, in order to uh, remain al- around. He doesn't eat food. He doesn't sleep. He, sub- he subsists on thought mind energy. Yes. And because uh, the passage that you just read from was actually a published piece of work that Elvin wrote for a literary journal called Children's Literature. And the Tulpa read this and knew that he was open to ideas like this. So he came to him to, to have yes. him feed his energy. So uh, the def- the verifiable facts are, yes. that, are that in 1990, Alvin Schwartz gave a talk, which he later published as this article in Children's Literature. It's called, called The Real Secret of Superman's Identity. Yes. And then he claims that in 1994... This other tulpa, Mr. Thongden, contacted him because based on, we'll just call him Thongden, which is what the book calls him most of the time, Mm -hmm. based on having read that article about Superman's real identity, he... He's considered Alvin Schwartz one of the very few candidates who could keep a tulpa like himself alive now that his creator had died. Mm -hmm. Um, And that uh, theoretically happened in 1994. And this book, An Unlikely Prophet, was published in 1997. Yeah. And the the Tulpa gives a lot of backstory to this idea. He says that, you know, your poet William Blake hinted at this. He said that nothing ever existed that was not first imagined, which is a very beautiful idea. I know we both mentioned that we like Grant Morrison. Yes. Grant has this idea that, like, before there was the, the, the atomic bomb, there was the idea for the atomic bomb. Before there was Superman, there was the idea for Superman. So let's manifest these positive things instead of negative things. I like that a lot. And uh, this tulpa also claims that Alexander Hamilton was a tulpa as well. Yes, which could explain <laughs> Hamilton the musical. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, yeah, it's very, it's interesting that he chose Alexander Hamilton of all historical figures because now he's a household name. Mm-hmm. But in 1997, when this book came out, people would have been like, Alexander who? Sure, sure, you sure. Know? Yeah, yeah, in the 90s. Yeah. <laughs> and I like the idea that he's like possessed by the American ideal too. Like so these tulpas exist throughout time. Yes. And uh, he chose the duel where he died as a fitting place to pass away because he knew that he was fading. But, <laughs> so there's a whole mythology in here of tulpas and how they've influenced culture. And the idea now is that Superman is the next in line, that there's this fantastic idea that's going to become manifest. And Elvin Schwartz apparently is the one to do it. Yes. Well, it, it, several several times, um, Alvin Schwartz talking to Thongden mm-hmm. says, he refers to the Superman or Superman, and Thongden corrects him and says, your Superman, yes. like a Superman. So they do. The book does draw a distinction between his particular version of Superman and every version of Superman. Sure, but that he, through 19 years of writing this character, although I think technically it's 17 years because he wrote for a few years before he started doing Superman. Mm-hmm. Through 17 years of writing this character, he had developed a very specific sort of proto tulpa yeah. of yeah, yeah. Superman, and. Thongden claims that he could see it floating around. Like Alvin. an aura. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so it, it's very interesting because it's uh, narratively, it's interesting um, because you can treat this book like a fiction story. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about it narratively is still the same. Mm-hmm. 
And so I actually wouldn't call it a memoir. I would call it a parable. I love that you said that. Yeah, please go on. <laughs> well, parables are um, the thing about a parable. It's a met, it's a sort of, sort of basically an extended metaphor. A, a C, there's a theologian, C.H. Dodd, and he says, and it leaves you sufficiently unsure of the meaning that you have to think about it. Yes. And the thing that I love about parables, and the reason I would call this book a parable, is that whether the story is made up or not, mm-hmm. you have to treat it as true to get the meaning out of it. Correct. So, you know, the story of the Good Samaritan, one of the most famous parables of mm-hmm. all time, it's not an actual historical account. It's a story in the gospel that Jesus makes up to sort of illustrate a point about who a person's neighbor is. Yes. And he tells this story and um, a guy's beat up savagely. He's left on the side of the road to die. And then essentially all the powerful and or slash religious figures of his day pass him by. Mm-hmm. And then a Samaritan who we tend to always associate that with the word good because of this parable, but yeah. Samaritans were essentially hated in that part of the world at that mm-hmm. time. So this sort of loathsome character that, that the person beat up in the, um, in the ditch would never voluntarily touch mm-hmm. comes and binds him, binds his wounds, pays for all of his care and treats him with love and care. And so you have to treat it literally first. Yes. First, you have to treat it as a story of someone who is savagely beaten, ignored by those who should be able to help him, mm-hmm. and then helped by someone who's hated. And then, of course, the greater meaning of what he's saying about what it means to be someone's neighbor comes out of that. But mm-hmm. you have to treat it literally first. So, I mean, I'm, I lean towards this book being a work of fiction, mm-hmm. but whether it's a work of fiction or an actual memoir, you have to treat it literally to get what he's trying to say out of it. So that's why I'm calling it a parable. And isn't that beautiful? Because the Superman idea is that for me, I grew up without uh, any sort of faith in my life or any sort of um, like discipline of any kind. Mm-hmm. So Superman was, was where I got all of my moral structure from. And that was a parable for me. I knew it wasn't true. But it was it was more important than truth. You know, it, it was this like these ideas that I could emulate and I could manifest effects in reality. I could be a good person. I could. Uh, yeah. So on and so forth. Caleb, you personally are a person who uh, you love comics and you're also a very spiritual guy. Uh, I would say that's probably pretty accurate. <laughs> Can we talk about what your day job is? <laughs> yes. Uh, so I work for a church here in Los Angeles called Reality L.A. or Reality Los Angeles. And uh, I work there full time on staff. I'm technically the copywriter, but we all sort of do uh, everything. The job description is much more fungible in the actual day-to-day living out and practice of it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I write comics. Yes, yes, um, some great stuff. So You've written, I, like, Batman. And... Uh, yes, I, Batman was one of the most fun things I ever got to write. They, for one thing, DC let me create my own Batvillain. Yes. Which is about as much fun as you can have with your clothes on, so, assuming uh, you write with your clothes on, which is actually <laughs> quite a leap of assumption for many. Caleb, Caleb brought a cape today, literally. So. <laughs> I, I brought a Superman cape. Um, I thought it would really affect the sound quality. Yeah, yeah, it's good for a podcast for, yes, to have exactly. props. You've written, like, the Peanuts, like, some really great yeah, comics. Yeah, Peanuts, um, and and uh, probably my one of my personal favorites was I, I got to spend a year writing Steed and Peel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the Avengers, the Aven- the British Avengers. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I've worked on a lot of things. Some you know properties people have heard of, like Peanuts or Ice Age or Batman, and and properties people may not have heard of, like uh, Cloaks and Hunter's Fortune and The Remnant, and uh, plenty of things in between. And so I have a I'm 
bivocational, as they say. I have I like that. dual callings. <laughs> I like that. And so you're very close to the idea of parables, and you're in your own work. Is yes. That, so you try to like channel that. I I you know I've I don't spend a lot of time consciously trying mm-hmm. to do it. Um, I think that um, if you line your life up with the things that you consider most important, mm-hmm. those things come out in your work naturally, mm-hmm. and they probably come out in a better way than you could have um, done on your own. Sure. So whether you want to, I mean, what, whether then you could have done consciously, I mm-hmm. should say. So whether you want to attribute it to emergence of the subconscious, which can process far more information than our conscious mind can mm-hmm. and find patterns that we wouldn't even know to put together, or uh, whether you see a spiritual influence there. I think the effect at your desk when you're writing is roughly the same, which is just try to tell the best story you can. And the things that are most important to you and the things that uh, matter most to you and the things that you think are of ultimate significance tend to come out in those stories. It's really great that you use the idea of like us, the subconscious and that emergence. And like in, in this book, they talk a lot about that um, art kind of wants to be what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. Jackson Pollock, the painter, is actually a character in this book because he was a neighbor of Elvin Schwartz. Yes, I actually in the at the point a little bit before he talks about Jackson Pollock. I actually, actually, right after that portion that I just read, I just made a note in the margin that said emergence. And, <laughs> and I just highlighted this big paragraph. Because <laughs> um, uh, I would say that particularly, well, so I'm both a skeptic mm-hmm. of the, this actually being a memoir, but I do, think, I do, think, he, <laughs> I do think he had a purpose in writing it that, mm-hmm. made it a, that makes it a, a useful parable. But I am a supporter of anyone who attempts to inhabit serious spiritual questions in their work Mm -hmm. and their process because our work is one of the main ways that we interact and contribute to the world. Mm -hmm. So, so many times we think of our spirituality as something we sort of do on our own time and our work is something we do. Sure, sure. But our work, other than sleep, we're going to do more working than anything else in our lives. So that is the place um, to apply spirituality and belief and to wrestle with questions and so if you're a writer, then it's in the writing of scripts that you want to, uh, it's in not, not the interpreting your script after you've written it, which I think we've all done. We're like, yeah, here's sure, what sure. I was trying to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, interviews often require that of you, <laughs> even if you don't know <laughs> what you were doing at the time. Sure, sure. But, but actually spending time thinking about what you're doing at your desk mm-hmm. and what the possible spiritual significance of that is yeah, yeah, and that writing scripts are more than, you know, and so that's why I like this book by Schwartz. That's why I like Grant Morrison and super gods. Um, I, I like anyone who tries to inhabit those questions mm-hmm. and talk through their process of, of meaning, the meeting of meaning and work. It seems to be like a necessary component to creation, which is uh, the dissolution of the ego and 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 these these books like this that talk about art already having a shape before you outline it is mm-hmm. interesting. Like Jackson Pollock, who I was just mentioning, he talks in this book about how like when he drops paint splattering onto canvases, they take on shapes of their own volition. And like there's there's pieces of his that look like they have thematic um, arcs. Like they're all about circles or squares. But he says that he doesn't actually make that shape. He just drops the paint, and that like there's a gravitational pull of the canvas of what it wants to be, and it creates those things. And I think that's the way that a lot of artists kind of dissolve their ego. David Lynch, Grant Morrison, these guys talk about the stuff they're working having existed outside of themselves. 
and that their job is just to bring it as clearly as they can into reality. Where like a lot of craftsmen and a lot of writers feel like like we sit at the table and we sweat and we're trying to like manifest things by our own will and we're trying to do it ourselves and it seems like a harder job and like the product isn't as great as when you just let go and you channel these things through you. That's kind of interesting to me as a creator. Do you how do you feel when you write? Do you feel like it's a yeah, an arduous it's a, process? It's a very a interesting thing? balance. And the terms I sort of put to it are the muse and the mechanic. That's great. So the muse is the instinctive side of you that's sort of just rolling and uh, the story wants to be what it wants to be. Mm-hmm. And that's what Alvin was talking about in that passage that I read. Mm-hmm. And you hear many, almost every writer has says that at one point. They're like, oh, the character wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. It, even though you made the character. So the character will do what you want them to do, but you know they start to take on this, they, there starts to be this emergence. And you're, Things feel right or wrong. It feels yeah. right, it feels wrong. Mm-hmm. And so that's the very instinctive side of it. And I call that the muse. Then there is the other side mm-hmm. where it's it's just work and sometimes you have to get out the wrench and figure out how this thing is going to support the weight of what's happening in the story mm-hmm. and that's the mechanic i am naturally a muse i'm a muse first writer mm-hmm. um and the mechanic is a learned behavior gotcha. so from the very beginning i wrote as muse mm-hmm. and i had to i really had to learn to be a mechanic to come in and sort of be able to improve things that sort of just came out of me instinctively and just sort of like, yeah, that's the secret job of writing (laughs) for for a living. It's not just like when lightning hits me and I'm inspired, I'll create something that's getting up every day and doing the work. Yeah. And so a lot of, I, I, you know, a lot of it, I, I just call it instinct, but a lot of it is just me going where it feels right and where it doesn't feel right. Um, I've had a lot of, it's funny, a lot of reviews of my, I, Back when I still read reviews, I stopped doing that a while back. But <laughs> a lot of my reviews would often mention pacing. And people would talk about how they loved my sense of pacing and mm-hmm. it didn't seem like too crowded. It didn't seem too. And that's entirely, I could not tell anyone how to pace a story. Sure. Um, I've, I've been in situations where I'm sort of supposed to on panels about writing comics or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, I, I don't know. Like it either feels right or it doesn't. Like it's either too many words in the balloon or there's not. It's like giving a panel on how to dance. Yeah. Like kind of explain <laughs> rhythm to somebody. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the muse and the mechanic. And I think that Alan Moore actually does a pretty good job of, of synthesizing these, these sort of more id first creators like Morrison or Lynch or, mm-hmm. or Schwartz with the more mechanically in kind when he talks about I think it was in I think it was an interview called Exit Interview he talks about technology and how the, the one of the two root words of technology is logos which is word yeah um, so that's the same word in Greek in scripture when it says in the beginning was the word. In, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the beginning was the logos, and and Alan Moore is essentially saying the same thing. He's like, in the beginning is the wor- the idea, mm-hmm. um, and so all technology was an idea first, but then we had to make it, and um, so on one hand it does exist, but on the other hand it doesn't exist until you make it. <laughs> yeah, the paradox there. That's yeah. really fun. And as as writers who both worked in like licensed properties, I think there's another level of this book where he talks about how he wrote for comics for forever. And then in 19, 1958, he had a new editor, right, which is Mort Weisinger, mm-hmm. who's notorious for being terrible to it's work a, with. It's a very <laughs> notorious comics figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> no one enjoyed it. Uh, kind of a blowhard. Didn't really get comics. And he forced Elvin into writing, or he didn't force him, but he he uh, commissioned the next Superman story, and he had a plot for it, which Elvin did not believe would ever uh, ring true in the Superman universe. It was Clark Kent transferring his powers to Lois. 
what she felt was like kind of arbitrary and cheap into the character and didn't make sense science wise and it just wouldn't happen in quote unquote reality mm-hmm. the reality of the story and uh, Elvin wrote that story anyway because he needed to pay rent and his editor demanded it and it severed his connection to the infinite it uh <laughs> it, it, he was no longer able to channel the Superman ideas that he used to be able to. It wrecked everything. It, it broke a circuit in his brain. And uh, he quit comics. And he, had, he hasn't written a comic uh, since. And he died. So he never wrote another comic, a comic again. <laughs> and now he's dead. So he still won't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we think. Uh, we're going to get like this third memoir in the mail tomorrow. Yes. But uh, yeah, that's really a poetic way of talking about having a crappy editor, which I've had in, in my real right. actual life. Isn't that interesting that there's a parable about, about that? <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's interesting to me is that he quit Superman and comics and sort of this imaginative side of himself because he felt this story of Superman sharing his powers with Lois Lane violated who Superman was. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting to me is that the climax of this book is Superman essentially sharing his powers and who he is with Alvin. Yes, Schwartz. yes. And so, so Alvin becomes the Lois Lane that he didn't want to give powers to in the course of this book. And so I find that very interesting. And, uh, you know, I wonder if there wasn't some, uh, he never, he never verbally, never with words, not just in this book, but anywhere that I've seen expressed Mm -hmm. any regret about quitting comics. Mm -hmm. But I think that he was still processing uh, a certain grief or loss. Yeah. It's felt like a breakup whenever you're like like a divorce or something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he still wrote about comics. Like he wrote these memoirs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he also wrote about, like he, he moved to Canada shortly thereafter. Like he didn't even stand up in the country. <laughs> no more the American way. And he, he wrote. Now he did have a Canadian wife. So there was yeah, a yeah. little, there was a little bit of an excuse there. And he wrote about um, the idea of modern literature uh, mirroring fairy tale ideas from the past. And he wrote like documentaries that were very positive to, like, to help humanity the way Superman might. But yeah, he never wrote comics again. Very, very interesting. Yes. Um, what was your favorite part of the book? Oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> I think it's really fun to read anybody's like speaking very seriously about very silly topics because mm-hmm. I feel like that's what I spend my entire life. Some might say waste my entire life doing is talking about Superman in this uh, very like intellectual, uh, spiritual way, and to find someone else that shares that idea. Uh, that's why you and I are friends as well. Mm-hmm. Like I, it's very. Uh, confirms something about the existence of reality to me. What, what about you? Oh, if I had to pick a favorite part. Um, uh, I I liked the chapter. My favorite chapter was probably the one where he talks about Jackson Pollock and his wife's weird auto painting experience. Yeah, yeah. It's very um, creepy. It's, <laughs> it happens early on. It's the first hint of the supernatural in the book. Yes. And what I, you know, what I like about Schwartz's take on the supernatural regardless of whether this is like a literal laying out of what he believes or not, Mm -hmm. there's a certain tendency in people when they talk about spiritual things to be glowing and act as if only good things happen. Sure. Uh, But from the, from the very beginning, Schwartz like is like, you know, no, there's some scary, there are scary aspects to this. There's loss of self Mm -hmm. and um, even physical repercussions Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, as his relationship with Thongden matures, he mm. actually becomes quite afraid of Thongden. Yeah at, yeah, yeah. at later points, who is this thought form that's supposed to be a very peaceful Tibetan, uh, or you know, the thought of a very peaceful Tibetan monk who is um, has been teaching him these things, mm. and then suddenly, sort of, the bottom drops out for these three, four chapters at the end, and he's 
actually there's something very disturbing about Thongden. Yeah. He's a, he's a parasitic entity that feeds on thought forms. <laughs> they actually talk about demons in this book, yes. too, because if you believe in the supernatural, then you can't just choose heaven. Yes. There has to also be hell. There's that balance, and that's kind of interesting and scary. So, so I that I liked, that he was just sort of like, if we're going to treat this as a real world, then let's treat it as a real world. And so that means that there are, are um, great things and also possibly terrifying things. And um, so I like that sort of... I don't, even, I don't even know what the term is that I'm looking for, but that unblinking look or that uh, taking the rose colors off the glasses. <laughs> sure, sure. It's not like a <laughs> just, sentimental. Just, yeah, exactly. Because a lot of, uh, it would be really easy for this to be sentimental mm-hmm. and to be kind of like, Superman is great and I missed writing him and mm-hmm. he's a hero and we should all be like Superman. And um, in some ways, that's almost what I expected yeah, yeah. at the beginning. And uh, instead he was like, you know, thought is an amazing place, but it's also a dangerous place. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of, I just got a text from my uh, tulpa that I have in my apartment. <laughs> yes. And I need to go think at it for like 20 minutes. Can we can we pause real fast? Yes, absolutely. Okay, okay cool, cool. All right, thanks, Caleb. My, my, my tulpa's fine. <laughs> good, oh, good. All right, all right. So let's get back to the idea of, uh, let's talk about Thongden a little bit, the character of Thongden, who's mm-hmm. this weird Doc Manhattan-like uh, guru mentor who comes to our character. At times he's in a suit and he's very modern. At times he wears like a kimono and he's like very like Tibetan and Eastern. There's a lot of uh, old school Elvin Schwartz talking about like magic Indians and magic Tibetan people, like the idea of the mysterious Orient, like like pseudo racist stuff in there. That's kind of yeah. He actually uses the term Oriental a couple of times, yeah, uh, which is. It, it, it's just an express. It's an expression of his. But he's he's like a really old guy. Too. Tem, temporal. He, yeah, he was when he wrote this. He was in his seventies. Yeah, so he yeah. was seventy five years old until the end of the book when he shapeshifts into a younger man. <laughs> yes, he <laughs> he be, he, be, he sheds fifty years and he becomes his twenty year old self mm-hmm. um, for the final chapters of the book. Yeah. So, what is your interpretation of, of the Thongden character? Did you what what are your feeling on that guy? I think that. I mean, I think ultimately the Thongden character is the result of Schwartz's research that he did for a documentary on Tibet. Yes. Um, he wrote documentaries for a while as one of his careers after leaving comics. Mm-hmm. And I think he had all of this Tibetan knowledge in his head, and I'm pretty sure that's where he encountered the idea of tulpa. Yep. And I think that he had something that he wanted to say about stories coming through us and about uh, remind. Uh, so there is a story that Thongden tells him at the very beginning that I think is actually the core of what Alvin is trying to say with the book. Sure. And it's this, it's a Hasidic story of um, a Jewish rabbi mm-hmm. who would wash the dishes each night before going to bed. Mm-hmm. Then he would get up first thing in the morning and wash them again. Mm-hmm. And his disciples asked, why are you washing the dishes? And he's like, because the dust gathers on them overnight. And... I love that story. Yeah, it's a great, and it's it's a parable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Schwartz uses this as an i. He refers to this many times throughout as this idea that the world is stranger than we think it is, mm-hmm. and we all have experiences that that confirm that, but then we all forget them. 
Mm-hmm. So it's this idea that the most important things in life are not things we need to learn, but things we need to be reminded of. Yeah, yeah. And, and he mentions that like, after meeting Thong, he starts recalling all of these weird instances throughout his life. And when he talks about it to his wife, she does the same thing. Everyone has this like large back catalog of crazy mysteries that they've encountered. But yes. they, but they just you have to not believe in it every day in order to pay the rent, in order to do the dishes. Like You have to just put it out of your mind in order to function. Yeah, so he calls this the dust gathering overnight. And I think a large part of why he wrote this book, because he says at the very end in his note to the reader, he's like, if this book can help you remember that there's more than just these small little daily grinds of life, that there's actually marvel and wonder and the inexplicable, Mm -hmm. then this book was worth writing, essentially is what he says at the very end. Yeah, I love that. That's my understanding of what church is for most people. That's why I have this podcast. That's why I have it on Sundays. That's not a coincidence. Like I like to re-energize myself thinking about how magical it was when I first encountered these Superman stories and the world was big and there were aliens and magic was real. And and I like talking with people about about these kind of ideas and yeah, wiping the dust off, as you say. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't want to get too like I don't want to far too fall too far down the philosophy like hole, but he references a, a favorite book of his by Hegel. Yeah, yeah, I have it written down here. Yeah, German yeah. philosopher Hegel. Yeah, and uh, you know it's funny because this book is very Hegelian in that. So Hegel, a lot of people consider Hegel the pivot in the history of thought from rationalism to relativism. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and of course the the philosophy that Schwartz is putting forth here is a very sort of relativistic. Um, but what's what I think is interesting is so Hegel had this idea that in every idea, so let's just say the idea of Hamlet mm-hmm. is the idea of not Hamlet. Mm-hmm. Hamlet is significant, but the reason it, it, like, we can think of it as something that exists because we can imagine that it didn't exist. Yeah, it exists in contrast to something. So every thesis contains the antithesis, is what Hegel would say. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being only has significance if you can also hold the idea of non-being. So, yeah. but then I, th- I think that's where Schwartz stops. So he has this thesis and antithesis of uh, the unusual in life and the day-to-day where we forget in the dust gathers. But he also applies that to Clark and Superman. Yes. But yeah, so he, Superman's he, he, defined by Clark. He has a very sort of dualistic take. Yeah. He's a, he's essentially, he he takes the first two halves of Hegel because Hegel concluded by saying what this then means is there's a synthesis where you find an idea that has both the, the idea of being and the be, idea of non-being and that this is how thought progresses. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think he ever makes a synthesis he always sort of pits these ideas of the unusual and the daily uh, against each other. And I don't feel like he came out with a synthesis. Maybe in, he has a, he has another book after this where he sort of does the same thing with Batman. Sure. It's called A Gathering of Selves. Yes. Yeah. So maybe he gets there. But um, I think, I feel like that's what I missed from the book. Um, because I think that in the every as I was sort of sure. talking, our work is the main way. I think in the everyday is where the unusual um, sort of the rubber hits the road. And uh, there, there's an old term for this quotidian, the mm-hmm. daily uh, quotidian mysteries. Like mundane. That, yes. Yeah, yeah. The idea of sort of a uh, what Karl Rayner would call an everyday mysticism, that it's uh, it's not these valley experiences or these crazy mountaintop experiences, but it's the day to day. He talks about that a little bit, though, where he references, again, Hegel with uh, the spirit of Christianity and Hegel's idea that like Christ was a. Uh, Whenever he manifested miracles, it was these these extreme points of emotion for him, and maybe that he was burning through his body, his his mortal like mortal bodies weren't built to do these kind of miraculous activities, so he was fading anyway. 
And there's this idea that he has where Clark Kent is useful because there's an idea of the Superman self, which he uses several times and I like a lot. And it, the Superman self is the eternal now. Um, when he encounters Superman in a dream in this book, Superman doesn't talk because to talk is to think about the past or the future. Superman just acts. He's a man of action, as we all say. Mm -hmm. So his idea of Superman is someone that moves without uh, doubt, without fear, and they just do what needs to be done. They just do the right thing. And then Clark is who he is afterwards when he reflects on that or when he plans things. And that you can't have both. To be the Superman self all the time would burn through his body the way that these miracles would burn through Christ. And, and I thought that was really interesting. He's trying to explain the the, the duality and the, the, the Manichaean binary aspect of Clark and, and Superman. Yeah, it's interesting because he talks about, he comes to this conclusion that the reason that Superman was silent in this dream that he had of Superman. Mm -hmm. uh, he actually ponders this for several chapters. Why was Superman silent? Why didn't he talk to me and then he comes to this conclusion the one that you just explained mm -hmm. but what's interesting to me is that he spends he talks in the book about spending 17 years putting words in superman's mouth mm -hmm. and that in at the end of the day he he left because he wrote a story where superman talked and gave his powers to you know it's just very interesting because it's not like he wrote stories where superman never spoke mm -hmm. and only clark spoke mm -hmm. uh, but he's saying that at age 75 he reached a, a different conclusion perhaps <laughs> yeah, yeah. about about how the two work uh, i kind of go the other way i like the quotidian aspect of superman that um I, I think of a particular moment from from morrison's jla actually where uh, early on superman is kind of like he's he literally just sort of like I'm not sure if I can, if I live up to people's expectations. He's like, people have a lot of big expectations of me and I'm just like, I'm just a guy. Sure. And then of course, uh, then a ship full of archangels like enters Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> As it does. <laughs> and Superman just like, it's it, it just like, no, you shall not pass. And he's like literally grappling with the forces of creation. <laughs> and I just, there's just this moment where Flash is like, this is the guy who's worried about not living up to expectations. <laughs> and I like that. I like that aspect of the two being in balance because I mean that's and that just reflects a little bit more of my worldview. This idea of quotidian mystery that the significant moments are the everyday moments, mm -hmm. and um, that's uh, that's actually why I feel very strongly about like I love Superman and Lois being married. I loved Peter Parker and Mary Jane being married because it was a very quotidian mystery. It was like a, an everyday experience. Mm -hmm. um, and that's also why I'm sad about the trend in divorces and magically vanished marriages recently. Yeah, that's, hard. that's hard. Yeah, I don't know. I like Clark Kent because Clark Kent is Sunday to me, which is why I like having this podcast on Sunday again. Like it's uh, on the seventh day, God rested. You know, like it's 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 holy and it's it's worthy of like taking time to slow down and take in what's going on and take account of like count your blessings and yeah. I, I really like the Clark idea. Yeah, that, that he, he's grounding himself in between these grand missions and that's necessary and that to be on all of the time. I know like when you and I have to do podcasts all day mm -hmm. or we have to go on panels or do autograph signings at Comic-Con, like at the end of that show, you're drained. Yes. You, you want to have your Clark Kent moment of just being around your loved ones and like thinking about what happened but not being active. And it's nice that even Superman and like God has that, like these rest points. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I, uh, I think that what makes the seventh day of rest significant is the six days of work. Mm -hmm. And what makes the yeah. six, what makes the six days of work significant is the seventh day of rest. So you have to have you have to have both. Um, exactly. You have to have those six days of uh, it keeps I keep I keep talking about work, but I think work is really 
so, so significant. Um, and I, I even say this as a person with two jobs because it really is where most of our lives go. And work and service Just hours wise, are kind of where... interchangeable too for guys like you and for guys like Superman. Like it's, <laughs> it's how you're servicing the world. So. Yeah, me and Soups. <laughs> <laughs> My two favorite guys. <laughs> Can we talk about uh, identity and costumes and stuff? They talk yeah. about that a lot in this book. Um, there's this quote where his son dresses up like Superman, like at a dinner party, and there's like some, an anthropologist there and a psychiatrist there, and they're they're asking the kid why he dresses up like Superman, and they're trying to get him to say various things to support their ideas of reality. And the son says that he dresses up like Superman because he doesn't want anybody to know who I don't want anybody to know who I really am. And the psychiatrist thinks that that's because he's trying to hide from the power of the father, this very Freudian <laughs> thing. And then the cultural anthropologist talks about like, well, no, that's because like he's trying to avoid expectation. Like wh- when we when we look at him and we see like Kevin or whatever his name is, we think that we know what he can and can't do. We know how old he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we place these boxes around him. But when he's wearing the Superman costume, well, then we don't have those expectations. Then he, he can fly. And that's how he explains to us that he can fly. I thought that was really cool. Yes, it was. That was one of the um, more fictional leaning chapters of the book because uh, Schwartz's conclusion is that children actually do fly, and then we just <laughs> and then we all forget. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think we can all have we all have like intense memories of things that didn't happen when we were kids, right? When you're playing make believe and you can visualize it so fiercely that you, you yes. can remember it. I think that's what he was talking and about. And sometimes you grow up and you still do that and you manage <laughs> and you to get, get paid, paid for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're the 11, your 11-year-old self thinks you are now the coolest thing ever. Again, yeah. Caleb is wearing a cape right now, <laughs> which is the coolest thing. Um, yeah. So tell, tell me what you what you thought of that scene. What I, your... just, I like the idea that uh, they said like it's children trying to explain that they can fly. I like the idea that these costumes are ways to just alter expectation and that if, if belief does have power and these costumes affect what people believe about us, then it would, superhero costumes make more sense now. I know when I see a cop, I regard them differently than a guy in a Metallica t-shirt. Mm-hmm. You know, I know when I see a firefighter, I think it's differently than, yeah, yeah, same thing. Yeah, so these things do have power. They do trigger responses in my brain and do, and I give people more authority based on what they're wearing. So do I also give them more authority over gravity? Do I give them more authority over myself? Like, how does that work? I thought that was... I, I like thinking about the costume idea a lot because in the modern era, we're starting to ditch that more and more. We're going the Smallville route mm-hmm. or the X-Men film route of black leather and blue T-shirts and costumes aren't necessary. But the, something feels like very lacking in superheroes when they don't have those giant chest emblems. And I don't know why. And this book helped to explain that to me a little bit. Yeah, I think symbolism is important because it it in itself is a story within the story. So if you look at Superman's costume, it is telling you a story about the American way based yeah. on its colors, about the fact that he's a protector because there's a shield shape on his yes. on his chest, um, that, he, uh, that he is a good guy with nothing to hide because he has no mask. Mm-hmm. You know, like the what we're losing is that sort of narrative within a narrative mm-hmm. because costumes are narratives. It's yes. a story. And so that's how I like that you use the word identity because I I see this story with his son. I think it was Alan. Um, It's he's starting the process that everyone goes through adolescence and high school and early adulthood is essentially trying on a series of identities and just finding out who you are Mm -hmm. in that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
uh, but I like that he's just he's not quite to the point of like high school cliques, and he's like trying on Superman to see like, is that, you know, my identity? Yeah. <laughs> and 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 what happens at the end of the day is that our identity ends up being made up of small pieces of each of them. So you have this idea exactly. that 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 adult version of Alan will still have a piece of Superman, you mm-hmm. know. And there's no such thing as just Clark and just Superman. Yes. There's there's a third thing. There's this Kal-El self that integrates the both them both perfectly. And that's really interesting. That's what the Hegel idea you talked about earlier, where, where it contains both the yes and the no, the one and the zero. Yeah. Yeah. This book is great. There's a lot of amazing ideas in it. and it, But it also goes into like, did you read creepypastas when you were a kid? Those like horror stories online that people would write? I never really did. So they're, they're always marked by like getting their... Quotidian, they're mundane, mm-hmm. and then something weird happens, and then gradually gets to unbelievable territory, and they're like, "And it really happened to me." <laughs> and this book has a lot of that. It it literally in the last chapter, he's like hooking up with his wife's uh, childhood imaginary friend. <laughs> he transforms he, into well, a yeah, twenty year old man. He loses fifty years and yeah. then hooks up with his wife's childhood imaginary friend, who's a magic Indian who can talk to foxes. <laughs> yes, which is, is verbatim in the book. It's it's amazing. <laughs> it gets so weird and like just flat out silly that it killed me a little bit because I wanted to believe this as fact. I'm yes. desperate to find um, some kind of magic in the world. And uh, there is, but it's it's not literal transforming into Superman magic, unfortunately. It's something uh, way more subtle and mysterious. Yeah, what I like about... Um, so Morrison references this this book, An Unlikely Prophet, in Super Gods. And it's it's a brief mention. But he talks about how, to him... All comic books already are tulpas because they're ideas mm-hmm. that people put together with ink and paper, mm-hmm. and now they're real. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they live beyond us. Alvin Schwartz is dead, but we're reading about Superman. We're reading about his Superman today. We can, we can still read his Superman strips from yeah. the 40s, from the 50s. We can read his book with his thoughts about his Superman strips from the 30s or the 40s. Mm-hmm. And um, Yeah, so this idea that these characters live on longer than us superman will still be around in 100 years and superman has been, was had already existed for 40 years before i yeah. came on this planet so so who's more real right <laughs> yeah exactly i like that a lot so there's a second book in the series that i'm going to go read now called a gathering of selves are you going to check that out too uh, i got to say i'm curious if you I, read I, it, I got to see where he goes from hooking up with his wife's childhood imaginary friend <laughs> Like what's what's the next chapter of a person's like, life after that? It's like a poly triad in Candyland. <laughs> yes. it sounds amazing. Well, if you do read that, come back in the show. We'll talk about that one too. Okay, Caleb, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate. Thanks this. so much for having me. Uh, do you want to plug anything? Do you want to? Where can f- folks reach you on the old internet? Uh, on the internet, probably the easiest thing is calebmonroe.com. Although I will say right now, I'm taking a break from most of my web presence. You're taking a Sunday. Yes. Taking... The one thing I'm still doing is my newsletter. So if you go to tinyletter.com slash Caleb Monroe. Can you spell it? Um, Caleb, just your name? Yes. What, C-A-L-E-B-M-O-N-R-O-E. Mm-hmm. And that the newsletter is the best place. Um, as far as plugs go, uh, it, this is a little early, but Eric and I are writing a book together. Yes, we are. I'm it's, so excited. It's called Heaven's Fist. Heaven's Fist. Um, we have a great artist who is working on the pages now, mm. and so we won't. We don't have dates or uh, <laughs> or any specifics beyond the fact that it's being drawn and we've written two issues, and it's awesome. But it's going to be beautiful. And it's a lot so, like this book. It deals with uh, like Christian iconography, but in a way that Jack Kirby would enjoy. Yes. So we'll, I'll just my plug will be keep your eyes open. Yeah. Yeah. 
And also, if you guys like my Superman talks, which you do because you're listening to this right now, <laughs> uh, I have a Superman story in the upcoming big old giant uh, DC Rebirth omnibus. It's this, the Christmas special that I wrote like last year. It's going to come out in, I think, September 9th in that big $100 omnibus thing. So if you want that, mail it to me. It's 40 pounds, and I'll sign it to you. All right, yeah. and then and then because he's a comic writer and he's broke, he won't be able to mail it back. Yeah, yeah. So you have to but come just, to my house. But just know that it will be in his apartment and it will be <laughs> yeah. signed. Pick it up whenever you're free. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks again, Caleb. Thank you. Ooh, super friends with Eric Esquivel.